Um, we're glad you're here. We're glad the school year is starting up, and I'm sure that you, fo you parents who have been uh, <laughs> running around like crazy all summer are glad in some ways that, well, the kids will have something else to occupy their time, even though they may grumble about that time. But uh, we, uh, we are really glad you're here, and we hope that you'll be here this afternoon. Uh, or at five th is it 5.30 to 7? Is that what it is? Uh, uh, because uh, we're we'll, we'll have a good time together. This morning we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this is part 22. This is part 22. And entitled, Dancing with Deacons. And once again, I think, I'm sure you will understand the reason for that title by the time we're done. We'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Three weeks ago, Brian introduced us to the idea of deacons serving in our church. I, I don't have control of this up here, uh, so I'll do that. There we go. Three weeks ago, as I was saying, Brian uh, introduced us to the idea of having deacons serving in our church. He helped us to understand that deacons serve in the church while elders lead in the church. And I hope that as you've watched the deacons serve and the elders lead here in our church, you'll, you've noticed or been able to observe that there's not a great deal of difference or distance between the elders and the deacons. And the reason that there's not a great deal of distance between them is because there's not a great deal of difference between them in the way they minister. In fact, we could say that the elders lead by serving and the deacons serve by leading. And I know that sounds like double talk, but stay with me for a minute. For example, this shows up during those times when we're cleaning up from a dinner here at church, and, uh, and, and there are tables that need to be moved back into that closet right there. The elders at a time like that, I've noticed, don't stand back and say, well, you know, I'm an elder, and I'm supposed to be devoted to prayer and, and to the study of the Word, so I won't help with this piddly, petty stuff. I'll just pray that God will raise up workers to, to get this job done. No, they lead by serving. In fact, I can tell you that uh, last Wednesday I was in a meeting with the elders and needed to leave the room to check on something. I heard that my lights were on out in the parking lot, and so I, I wandered around the corner. And as I was leaving the room, I spilled some of my coffee on the tile floor out there, not on the rug. And I told myself that I'd get back to that. You know, it was one of those, oh, my goodness, I'll get back to that when I get back into the room. I was gone for just a few seconds, literally. And when I came back into the room, Jason Whittle, one of our elders, was down on his hands and knees wiping up the coffee that I had spilled. As an elder, Jason was leading by serving. At the same time, the deacons in our church serve by leading, and by that I mean that when it's time to clean up after a dinner here at church, and there's all kinds of things that need to be done, it's often one of the deacons who makes the first move when it comes time to clean up. And as soon as that first deacon makes that first move, the rush begins to get the job done as other people, both deacons and non-deacons, follow his lead. So deacons both lead and serve with a greater emphasis on serving, and elders both serve and lead with a greater emphasis on leading. And all of this works because of a truism that I try to live by. There is no limit to the good that can be done if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. In other words, if the elders or the deacons are hungry for recognition, they'll not be able to either serve or lead well. 
But when all the deacons and all the elders are committed to God getting the glory for the things that are accomplished, there's no end to the good that we can do together. Because there's nothing that works like the church when the church works. So having introduced us to the idea of deacons, Brian provided us with a very fitting description of the men who would be eligible to be ordained as deacons, to serve as deacons in our church. And he provided us with that description by walking us through some of the qualifications of a deacon. Brian pointed out to us that deacons must be men of dignity who have already earned our respect before we ordain them to serve as deacons. They must be men who are sincere and not double-tongued. They must be men who are not two-faced. In other words, they must be exactly who they seem to be. Deacons, in fact, must be WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get if they're going to serve here in our church. They must be men and women who are capable. Men and women who have, have confirmed for us, have established for us that they are capable. Uh, they have to be Jedis that haven't gone over to the dark side, which makes, only makes sense since no one would want Darth Vader to be a deacon in their church. Although it might be helpful when it comes time to put away the tables. I, I, you know, I'm not sure of that. Deacons must also not be inclined to get drunk or to work for sordid income. And if sordid doesn't resonate with you any more than it does with me, you can pick one of the synonyms for sordid. Be fouled, be mired, be grimed, be smirched, cruddy, dingy, dirty, filthy, foul, grimy, grubby, grungy, mucky, muddy, nasty, smudged, smutty, soiled, stained, or sullied. You get the picture. He's got to be an honest man, working for an honest living, because honesty is needed in the church. Now, the job of a deacon is not always going to be easy, and that's why Brian pointed out to us that deacons must be men who are first tested and proven, and in part what that means is that they have to be men who have faced trials and have emerged from those trials better than when they went in. In other words, we want to be led and served by men who can walk along with us and encourage us in the difficult times just as they walked along with us when life was good. And as Brian talked about that, I thought about one of my favorite poems. It was penned by Amy Carmichael and entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? I turn back to it often in my ministry and in my life. And if you'll excuse the these and thous and hasts in her writing, I think you might find it meaningful. In that poem, she pictures Jesus asking you, about your scars. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. I leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening wolves that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound? No scar? Would we be led and served by men in the church and women in the church who can encourage us when we're in pain? Men who are able to encourage us because they've walked that same road before us and have now come back to walk that part of the road with us. 
And Brian also pointed out that deacons must be men who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And I love where Brian took us as he explained what it would mean for a man to hold the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. Brian told us that a, a mystery in the New Testament is a truth that was hidden in the past, but is now revealed in Christ. Now we know that Paul was a man who studied God's word and knew it well. But when he speaks of a mystery, he's talking about something that he didn't find in the Old Testament as he studied it. But it was revealed to him by God's Spirit. And you may remember what Brian said. The word mystery is used 21 times in the New Testament. And 20 of those 21 times the word mystery is used, it has something to do with the message of the gospel or the impact of the gospel on our daily lives. And it occurred to me when he said that, that, that most of us enjoy a good mystery. And I think that that means that we could all spend the rest of our lives just pondering the mysteries in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised to never die again and we will all be changed. Or how about this one from Colossians chapter 1? The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You could spend the rest of your life unpacking those two mysteries and you'd never be done unpacking. I can guarantee that. And I can promise you that five minutes spent unpacking one of the mysteries that you find in the New Testament is worth infinitely more than five years you might spend unpacking one of the petty mysteries you find on social media. And yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm back and... I'm talking about social media. Again, I'm talking about social media because I can't tell you how burdened I am for our church and the raw and devastating impact social media has had on us and the damage it has done to us as individuals and to us as a church over these last three years. And I'm mentioning that now because we'll soon be done with chapter three and we'll start into chapter four. And when we get there, we'll unpack some truths that are going to be very difficult for us to hear. And I want you to have the time to get your hearts ready. And that's all I'll say about that right now. So <clears throat> we're supposed to be busy looking for qualified men who can serve as deacons in our church. And here I am again, once again, with a message for men, 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 men. And, and we have to be thinking, what about the women in our, in our church? Has Paul nothing to say to the women of the church and how they serve? Well, I'm glad you asked because this morning we're going to discover that Paul has some very powerful, very poignant things to say to the women who will serve in our church. And I don't know how this happened again, but here I am again, a man, having drawn the card that has me talking to you women about how you should serve in the church. Brian got away with it last time. He's getting away with it this time. But I find myself wishing and hoping that none of you ladies have worn stiletto heels or platform shoes this morning because I am painfully aware of how much injury those kinds of shoes can, it can inflict to a man's head when they're thrown by an angry woman. So please 
just refrain from that later on. You can slap me or something. I'd be glad for that. But I apologize that it's me up here again talking to you women about your service. But, but let's start there. What about you ladies? Is there a place for you to serve in our church? And how would you qualify yourself if you wanted to have a ministry here in our church? The answer to that first question is simple. Yes, there are things that need to be done right here in our church that men simply can't do. Things that require a woman's touch. And ladies, I hope that by the time you leave here this morning, you'll be longing for God to use you in a beautiful way here in our church as you take on ministries that only women, only a woman of God can master. To get there, we need to read the passage for this morning. And once again, we'll read the entire passage on deacons and then focus on the verse that the Spirit of God has set aside for us to consider this morning. So if, you'd st if you would, stand with me as we read aloud together from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Sorry, that's so small. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You can all take your seats with the confidence that God always blesses us with his truth as we read his word. As we take on this women's role in the church this morning, uh, I, I want to tell you a, a story from God's Word. Surprise, surprise. And I, I think it's only fitting that I tell you a story about a woman. The story actually starts out by telling us about a man, but this man is not going to be the hero in his story, not by a long shot. Instead, his wife will be the hero. And by the end of the story, I predict that you'll already understand the first qualification that Paul gives us for women who will serve as a deacon in the church when he says that they must be dignified and worthy of respect. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from 1 Samuel chapter 25. There was a certain man who lived and carried on his business in the region of Carmel. He was very prosperous. He owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And as the story begins, the season for shearing sheep had begun there in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Abigail was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but Nabal was brutish, churlish, and just downright mean. As the story begins, David, the son of Jesse, was out in the back country with a whole bunch of stout dudes who were following him. And David and his men heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And as everyone knew, the sheep shearing time was always a festive time, a time for banquets and for feasts. So when David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men off on a mission. And before they, they left, he gave them these instructions. He said, go to Carmel and approach Nabal. Greet him in my name and say to him, peace. Peace be to your household and peace to everyone in your life. David went on to say, please tell Nabal that I heard that it's sheep shearing time. And in that light, there's something that I'd like to tell him. 
And this is what David wanted passed on. When your shepherds were camped near us, David wanted to say to Nabal, we never took advantage of them. In fact, your shepherds didn't lose a thing all the time they were, they were there with us in Carmel. And tell Nabal that if he were to ask his servants, they would confirm for him what I just said. And then David got to the point when he told the young men what he wanted them to say to Nabal. What I'm asking right now is that you will be generous with my men. In fact, I'm asking you to share your feast with us. I hope that you'll be willing to give whatever your heart tells you to give to your servants and to me, David, the man who has served you like a son in protecting your sheep. So the young men from David's camp went and delivered this message, word for word, to Nabal. Nabal didn't skip a beat. He drew a breath and responded to David's request by tearing into the young men who had brought it. He said, who is this David guy that you're talking about? Who is this turd son of Jesse? You know, the country is full of runaway servants these days. Do you think I'm going to take my good bread, wine, and meat that I have set aside and prepared for my sheep shears and give it to men that I've never laid eyes on? Who the heck knows where you guys have all come from? When Nabal was finished with his rant, David's men got out of there as fast as their legs would carry them and went back and told David what he had said. David thought for a minute and grew furious and said, Everybody, strap on your swords. We're going. So they all strapped on their swords, and David set out with 400 of his warriors while 200 stayed behind to guard the camp. Meanwhile, back at Nabal's house, one of the young shepherds told Abigail, Nabal's wife, what had happened. David sent messengers from the back country. He said, uh, he, he sent them to salute our master, but he, our master, tore into them with insults. But I have to tell you, ma'am, that, that David's men treated us very well. They took nothing from us and didn't take advantage of us all the time that we were there in the fields. In fact, they formed a wall around us, protecting us day and night from, from the time we were out tending the sheep and and then the servant continued, so ma'am, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, do something quickly because big trouble is headed our way and all of us are going to be in big trouble if David gets here. The young servant concluded by saying, I might have said this personally to my master, but you know him as well as I do. You know that nobody can talk to him. He's impossible with the way he bullies people. Abigail flew into action. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, and five sheep that had been butchered and were ready for cooking. She also prepared a, a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred raisin cakes, uh, 200 fig cakes, and she had all those supplies loaded on some donkeys. Then she said to her young servants, go ahead and pave the way for me. I'm right behind you. But she said nothing to her husband, Nabal. She was riding her donkey. She descended into a ravine, and David and his men were descending from the other end of the ravine, so they met there on the road in the middle of the ravine. David had just been explaining to his men that Nabal and all his male servants would pay a ferocious price for Nabal's foolish insults, but he stopped talking the moment he saw Abigail. In the meantime, as soon as Abigail saw David, she got down off of her donkey and bowed as she walked toward him, and then she fell on her knees at his feet. She said to him, My master, let me take the blame for this. Please let me speak to you and listen to what I have to say. Don't give another minute to thinking about what Nabal, that beast of a man, did. 
please understand that he always acts out the meaning of his name. And we both know that his name Nabal means fool. In fact, foolishness oozes from him. She went on to say, I, I wasn't there when the young men you sent arrived at our home. I didn't see them. And now, allow me to respectfully say this. As God lives and as you live, God has kept you from taking revenge for yourself. Since that's true, I ask you now to take this gift that I, your servant girl, have brought to you. Please give it to the young men who follow you. Please also forgive my presumption, but I can see that God is at work in your life. I can see that he's teaching you to be a solid and dependable ruler. But if you stoop to avenging yourself by murder, your actions today will be a dead weight in your heart because you will carry the guilt of murdering someone to take revenge. Please don't let that happen. And when you become king, please remember me and my words to you today. When Abigail had spoken her mind, David said, Blessed be God, the God of Israel. He sent you to meet me, and may you be blessed because of your good sense. And may you also be blessed for looking out for me by keeping me from murdering your husband. You have stopped me in my tracks and saved your husband's life. David then accepted the gift she brought to him and said, Return home in peace. I've heard what you said and I will do what, you, what you've asked. And that is the story from God's word, except for a detail that I think you should search out for yourself. When you get home, read the chapter, 1 Samuel 25, from, from start to finish. No cheating. And I predict that you'll enjoy the surprise ending. Please don't check it out now. I know it's tempting. Save it until you get home, because we still need to talk about women who serve in the church. I see you checking it out. Stop it right now. <laughs> it, it, it's okay to have homework, isn't it? I mean, just read it. It's really, really cool what happens next. <sighs> Maybe you remember that before I told the story, I said that when the story was finished, you'd already understand the first qualification that Paul lists for the women who will serve as deacons. Look with me at verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The women who will be deacons are to be women who are worthy of respect. Now, in our world today, many women take it upon themselves to demand respect. I don't know if you've met anybody like that. And there's a part of my heart that agrees with that. I believe I owe respect to a woman simply because she's a woman. But, and I know that this is a dangerous point to make, hold your shoes, there's a difference between being owed respect and being worthy of respect. I owe every woman respect simply because she's a woman. But I have to tell you, some women are easier to respect than others. And the same thing is true of men. There are men to whom I owe respect even if they've not proven themselves to be worthy of my respect. By virtue of the role that they play in my life, I owe them respect, even if they haven't proven themselves to be worthy. And these same principles hold in the church when it comes to women serving in ministry, women serving as deacons. I think that Paul would agree that women are owed respect simply because they're women. But when it comes to a woman serving in ministry, serving as a deacon, she is not automatically qualified to serve simply because she is a woman and we owe her 
respect. A woman qualifies herself by ministry by living in a way that makes her worthy of respect. And if you're struggling to understand that distinction, think about Abigail. Can you imagine a woman more dignified, more worthy of respect than Abigail was that day? She instantly knew that her husband was in mortal danger, and she immediately understood what she had to do to save his life. She took the opportunity to respect David, and he responded to that by respecting her in return. Her good attitude drew out an equally good attitude from David as he responded to her. So it's clear to me that, at least to me, that we're not talking about a whining, nagging woman here. No, I admit, I admit that whining, nagging women can get things done around the house and around church, but nagging women manage to get things done by generating aggravation instead of generating respect. And I'm equally convinced that if Abigail had aggravated or nagged David, things would not have turned out as well as they did that day. So choose to be dignified and respectable instead of choosing to be a thorn in the side of the people that you're serving. Now some translations use the word wives here in this verse, while others use the word women. Look again at verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The truth is, <coughs> the word that Paul uses here that's translated women in the NIV can go either way. In the New Testament, the Greek word that Paul used here is translated bride once, wife 83 times, and woman 130 times. And since Faith is here this morning, she's sitting right over there. Since Faith is here this morning, I can, I can clear this up in a redneck kind of way by saying, you see that lady right there? See my woman. You hear me? See my woman. I know she's my wife, but you know what redneck is going to say that, all right? She's my woman. What I'm trying to say is that wife is a very legitimate way to translate this word into English, but woman would be just as appropriate. As a point of order and polity, here's, we should, here's where we should say that here at the Potter's House, we won't ordain a man who qualifies as a deacon unless we can all also ordain his wife because she qualifies as a deacon as well. So we ordain a man along with his wife and we ask them both to serve in the role of deacons. And besides that, here at the Potter's House, we always choose our elders. We always take our elders from among the deacons because we want to see a man serve effectively as a deacon before we would assume that he can lead effectively as an elder. And if he qualifies himself as an elder, then we'll ordain him to officially serve in that role, but his wife will not become an elder with him. That's just not the way we do it. She'll continue to serve as a deacon. But this doesn't mean that someone has to be married in order to serve as a deacon. An unmarried man or an unmarried woman can be ordained as a deacon, provided they meet the qualifications. And that's the last point of order I'm going to make this morning, and I only made that point for the sake of those who care about or are interested in the polity of our church. Let's get back to the qualifications. If you spend any time in the South, then you've had the privilege, the opportunity to have a conversation with an elderly Southern woman. And if you've had a conversation with an elderly Southern woman, you may have heard her say, well, bless your heart at one time or another during that conversation. 
And if you have heard an older southern woman say, bless your heart to you, then you should be aware of the fact that that's code. And if we were to translate it into Ozark's English, then what that older woman was actually saying to you was, you're an idiot. You, you are an idiot. And please know that the bigger her smile was when she said it, the stupider she thinks the thing you... It's just the way it works. That silly illustration paves the way for us to look at the next qualification for a woman who will be ordained as a deacon. Verse 11 says, In the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy and everything. Paul is saying that a woman who is a malicious talker should not be ordained as a deacon. Now, I think the best way to understand this is for us to consider for a moment what it does not say. It does not say that we can only ordain women who only say nice things to other people. That's not what it says. A few years ago, I, I had arrived in Detroit on a plane that had come from Asia, and I was standing at the baggage carousel. Some of you have had this experience, waiting to pick up my bag so that I could take it through customs and recheck it so that I could go to my next destination. I stood back a little way from the carousel, and I noticed a Chinese woman standing there in front of me. And I know it's not politically correct for me to say that she was Chinese, but, well, she was Chinese. She's standing there in front of me, and I, and I have to admit that she was standing in my way. She was standing between me and the carousel, but I also had to remind myself that that's how things are done in China. This was perfectly acceptable where she comes from, so I decided to cut her some slack because she was a woman, and I owe her respect. There was also an American man and his wife standing in front of me. They were also in my way. As I stood there, the American man pushed the Chinese woman out of his way, literally physically pushed her out of the way and told her to go stand somewhere else because this is my spot. That's what he said to her. As he said it, I, he used some language that I was pretty sure she didn't really understand, but I, I understood it. I understood exactly what he was saying. I leaned in behind him and spoke over his shoulder. I said, hey, guy, when I woke up this morning, I had no intention of being a jerk today, but buddy, you just pushed my jerk button. Without being profane, I told him that he had no business talking to a woman like that, especially a foreign woman who was visiting our country. His wife grabbed him and pulled him to the side and said, oh, oh, don't talk to that man. I said, really? He can talk to a woman like that, but not a man? She pulled him even further away in response to that, and they kind of crab walked their way along the carousel. I spoke to the woman. I turned to her and I said, I, I'd like to apologize for that man and tell you that not all American men are like him. Please stand wherever you need to stand because you can be sure he won't bother you again. In the next few minutes, she got her bag and I got mine and we went our separate ways. Now, I want to point out that I did not say nice things to that man. But I did try to follow Paul's advice in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul says that we should speak the truth in love. Now here again, you may be one of those people who has no desire to be a deacon, but I would hope that even if you don't want to be a deacon, you would have a deep desire to not talk maliciously to other people. I hope that none of us wants to be catty, spiteful, cruel, or hateful 
as we talk to others. Instead, I hope that when we studied Ephesians, we all learn the importance of living according to Ephesians 4.29, which says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So say nice things to each other. Bless your hearts. Look at verse 11 again. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Now, I think we've all probably known a woman or two who is as hot as a firecracker, ready to explode at any moment. And I expect that we've also known <coughs> a woman or two who is as cold as ice, a woman who seems to have no natural warmth in her personality. But Paul uses the word temperate here to describe the kind of woman who can serve as a deacon. And there's something basic and intuitive, I believe, about this because <clears throat> if you're going to reach into the lives of other people, it would, be a, it would be best if you were to avoid the two extremes of being an, a firecracker or an ice block. You don't want to go through life being angry. And at the same time, you don't want to go through life being cold and aloof because you want people to be able to see the love of Christ in you. And it's hard to see the love of Christ in a firecracker or a block of ice. And I hardly think that we need to say anything at all about this last qualification. A woman who will be ordained as a deacon needs to be trustworthy in everything. That speaks for itself, but once again, let's cut to the chase. Even if you don't want to be a deacon, wouldn't you want people to be able to consider you trustworthy in everything? And that's just one more proof that none of this is rocket science. There's one more point that I want to make about all of this as we draw this morning to a close. You see, I, I believe that Paul is, is describing something very beautiful here as he describes a man and a woman being in ministry together. And as I say that, I want you to know that my wife, Faith, and I grew up during a time when dancing was frowned upon in evangelical circles, to say the least. As a consequence, neither one of us ever learned to dance, and we never went to dances. We didn't dance at our wedding. We asked our children to avoid dancing at their weddings, something that I now regret. But having said that, I want to say that Faith and I have never been dancing. But that doesn't mean that we've never danced. You see, there are those nights when, when we're out and about and we find ourselves with someone who's in need. Their hearts are broken because of something that's happened to them in the past day, the past week, or the past month. And it's obvious that this person, this couple, this family needs to experience God's love and his joy right now. And as I step in that direction, as I lean in, wanting to minister God's love and joy in that moment, this woman, who fills the void that I create when I walk into a room, steps in right beside me, and we dance to the rhythm of the Spirit of God as we share His love and His joy with those folks in that moment. And I can't express how beautiful it's been all these years in ministry as my girl and I have danced together to a music that well, no one else can hear. That's something that I wish for everyone this morning, everyone that's here. I wish you could experience the beauty of ministering together. There's a song 
And this time it's not by Casting Crowns or Andrew Peterson. It's by a guy named Eric Clapton. If you're a couple here today, and you've been in ministry together, I want you to hold hands. Please. She won't bite. Take her hand, guys. Hold her hand. Sit back and think about ministering together as you listen to these words. It's late in the evening. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She puts on her makeup and brushes her beautiful hair. And then she asks me, do I look all right? And I say, yes, you look wonderful tonight. We go to a party and everyone turns to see this beautiful lady that's walking around with me. And then she asks me, do you feel all right? And I say, yes, I feel wonderful tonight. It's time to go home now. And I've got an aching head. So I give her the car keys and she helps me to bed. And then I tell her, as I turn out the light, I say, my darling, you were wonderful tonight. Oh, my darling, you were wonderful tonight. Sweetheart, thank you for dancing with me all these years. And then let me say this. If you're a guy that's holding your girl's hand this morning, Take a moment to look into her eyes and thank her for dancing with you. Go ahead. In closing, let me read this simple verse one more time. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy and in everything. Will you stand with me in the presence of Father and our God, we thank you today for the privilege that we have of experiencing your heart, your loving heart, your joyful heart. God, we trudge through ministry sometimes and we're well aware that we don't need to because we have the privilege of trudging through ministry together. And God, we thank you for, for all those times when a music is broken out, a music that that only those of us who are in ministry can hear. Thank you for the privilege that we have of dancing together as we experience and express the love that you show us, the joy that you've given us to other people who are desperate to know those and, and experience those same things. God, I pray that you'd send us out into the community more passionate than we've ever been about the privilege that we have as couples of expressing your love and your joy. Thank you, Father. As you send us out, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. We're headed out, and as we head out the door, I, I want to ask a favor of our couples today. I, I want you to, there's something that I want you to do for me. If you're a couple, and you've known the joy of ministering to others together, Please find, and this is a simple thing to do, if you need help with this, get one of your kids to help you. Please find Eric Clapton's song, Wonderful Tonight, later today. Play it, kick off your shoes, and dance together. And gentlemen, dance with your girl with such heartfelt meaning that she feels danced with 
all week long. All that's left is for me to say, ready? Go get him Potter's house.